Hello and welcome to the Barefoot Coaching Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. I'm Adam and in this series I'll be speaking to inspirational people who have made a change in their lives in order to make a difference. A difference for themselves, for others and for the world at large. Expect real stories, insights and wisdom from coaches and non-coaches alike. This is the Make a Change to Make a Difference podcast. My guest today is an experienced coach and coach supervisor who describes herself as being warm, empowering and challenging with a mission to build the resourcefulness of coaches, individuals and teams. She's an expert in her field and an advocate for coaching supervision and coaching ethics. As well as having a private coaching practice, she's a barefoot associate coach and lead tutor on our team coaching program, our postgraduate certificate in coaching supervision and our brand new executive team coaching program for senior leaders in organisations. A very warm welcome to Diane Heller. Hello. Hello. It's absolutely hilarious, isn't it, that we've been talking about trying to get together for over a year. And the first time we manage it, we're sat at opposite ends of the table with two microphones between us. Yes, how bizarre, but lovely anyway. (laughs) Lovely to see you, Adam. (laughs) Likewise. Yes. And welcome back to Barefoot. I mean, you're a friend of Barefoot anyway. You're with us here in our offices regularly. And I should say, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, because this episode is going out in January. And I am wondering what your take on New Year's resolutions is, because the New Year's resolution has had mixed reviews over the last few years. What's your take? Yes, I'm probably kind of less in favour of resolutions these days, uh, because I think, you know, true coach, think you've got to be ready to do the work. So, you know, when you've had a lovely, wonderful, festive period and you come into January and think, oh, I've got to lose weight, you know, drink less or whatever the resolution is. And it's, it, yeah, it feels hard. You've actually made me think totally differently about New Year's resolutions, actually, because <laughs> you're right. There has to be a intrinsic motivation. Mm. And I suppose the pressure of January and feeling as though one needs to set resolutions is, of course, is externally applied, isn't it? Rather Absolutely. than, as you say, having to be ready to do the work. And it also makes me think about the idea of aligning ourselves to the seasons and that winter and the cold months being time for us to sort of retreat inwards and do the work we need to do internally to then emerge in the spring, summer, ready to put our plans into action. Yeah, no, absolutely. My daughter and I in the pandemic decided we were going to set this resolution of going walking every day before she got to studying and I was going to do work on the screen and I think we lasted about 10 days in the January weeks because it was so dark in the world. we hadn't realised it was going to be so dark and we just left it a few weeks and actually then we felt a little bit more motivated towards it. Well let's talk about motivation because every time I have had a conversation with you right from the very first time you appeared to me as somebody highly motivated by love and the work that they do and coaching in general and I'm wondering whether it feels that way to you. Yeah, well, you mentioned the word intrinsic and absolutely I feel now today that I am intrinsically motivated by what I do. I absolutely love it. I love every part of coaching, whether it's coaching on a one-to-one with a team, a group, supervising coaches, educating coaches, everything about coaching is wonderful. Mm, that's just made me think about yeah you are involved in really sort of every stage of the coach journey because you know you supported on our flagship program you tutor mentor coach Mm. supervise develop 
it's the full spectrum, really, of everything that the yeah. coaching world has to offer. Yeah, it is now. And it, it took some time as an independent coach to get to th- this sweet spot that I think I'm in now. But yeah, I'm really kind of happy here. It's a happy place. Well, very good. Where did your journey with coaching start? I don't think I really called it coaching, but right from the early days of my first job, which was in an Asda store as a training officer working on the shop floor with customer service and product knowledge type areas. That whole thing about skilling people up, not just to know things, but also to be able to ask questions, to show curiosity, all those sort of things, started really right early on. And then as a leader later on, realised that my sort of natural way of interested in people, relationship focus, curious about people, seeking to understand them before talking to them about what maybe their objective was and all that sort of thing, were all kind of foundational points to where I found myself thinking, oh, it'd be quite good to be a qualified coach. (laughs) I wonder what that might be like. So I kind of investigated that and that brought me to here. Well, I'm very glad it did. (laughs) How long ago was that? Because were you on one of Kim's first courses? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It it always makes me smile, actually, because in the same way that these days we qualify, you know, have a conversation with people as they come onto the programme. Well, of course, in those days, Kim did that. You know, she did the uh, kind of conversation which we had on a settee. I remember it distinctly because I'd had a lot of support and training and learning, particularly at the Boots Company. I'd worked for the Boots Company for a lot of years and they'd really given me a lot of foundational core skills. And I remember saying to Kim, well, I'm not really sure what I'm going to get out of this programme because I always have had a lot of learning. (laughs) And I mean, I laugh at myself for saying that because the the Barefoot Coach Programme was a significant learning experience for me and actually was at that whole point of, of these podcasts, you know, that kind of making a change to make a difference. It was a pivotal point. But yeah, I, I did feel on reflection, I'd perhaps put her on the rack a bit. She was great, of course, about it and very gracious and said, well, come and experience it and see what you think, which I did. What were the events then that led up to you joining the programme? What was the change you decided to make for yourself then in order to make a difference? Well, I'd, I'd sort of done a lot, a range of what I'd call kind of senior HR learning and development type roles by this stage. And you know, I had a really successful career, if you like, in both larger organisations and then more latterly in a smaller organisation where I was sitting on boards, you know, helping helping with the running of organisations as well as doing the peopley things. And I had my children around this time. So one of the things is I took the decision to do the, the coaching course when my children were quite, they were both under three. I did feel it was slightly crazy when they were both crawling around my ankles and I was trying to write the essays at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but, but actually I had this intention of maybe moving away from the corporate world. I was getting a little bit tired of probably the politics, if I'm honest, in the that kind of environment and wondered if I could play to my strengths around people in the coaching space. And so that's what really then led me to, on the recommendation, of course, that the Barefoot course was one to look at. Um, I looked at it, spoke with Kim, went on the programme. It's so often the story that people find their way to Barefoot through recommendation. Had you had any experience of coaching or coaches before you 
found your way to us? So, of course, I delivered training on coaching skills for managers, for, you know, for many years during that time that I'm talking about. And I had a coach within an organisation I was working with. So I'd had some experience of coaching. But I, I suppose I felt, because I came from the HR area and I was a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Personal and Development, I feel qualification is important. If you're going to take it as a professional journey, then you need to get qualified. So that's why I was really interested in the Barefoot Coaching Programme because it had a postgrad certificate attached to it. And I thought, actually, if I'm going to step out into that independent world as a coach, then that seems like the right thing to do. Mm. Yeah, one of the first coaching programmes in the UK to have university approval in that sense. Did you have any idea of the kind of coach you wanted to be or the kind of work you would have liked to have done in coaching at the point you enrolled? Well, that's a really great question because I went into it thinking that I wanted to only ever be an executive and leadership coach. And that's where I started, actually. So I started working with leaders and execs around their leadership style, approach, kind of conundrums, dilemmas, etc. And did a lot of hours of exec coaching. But as we've gone through my coaching journey, actually, my interest is more holistic and more interested in the whole person, more about well-being and resilience and being the best version of yourself, which can be anybody and can touch anybody in the world, really, not just leaders. So, yeah, I've gone on a bit of a journey about that. Did you feel that the sort of skills that you learned on the Barefoot programme set you up to be able to not just be one particular type of coach, to then do the work that you really wanted to do with people? Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I think people are people wherever they are. So whether they're in a, a corporate environment, a public sector body, the NHS, wherever, they're all humans. And so what I think the Barefoot programme supported and took forward for me was this understanding of people to a greater degree and also ways of working with them that would kind of help them grow and develop. So I felt that I could apply that to anywhere, including my children, <laughs> although they didn't like it so much. <laughs> <laughs> were they your practice clients? <laughs> yeah, they were. Well, they, they were quite responsive to the Nancy Klein, me being silent and just listening. <laughs> Brilliant. When you look back on your time on the programme, what are your lasting memories? What I think about the Barefoot programme is that it's transformational at a personal development level. And I, I've always said that. So I know that I went on that programme and many people do to qualify as a coach on that side. But actually, it's a transformational programme for me. And I remember to this day a coaching session that I had around my personal image, around, you know, how I saw myself versus how I kind of wanted to be. And it was a real turning point in addition to the coaching I had around my value set and really understanding how much I appreciated difference and inclusion, actually, right from that point. So I know it's very topical now, but I really appreciated my value in that. I remember those coaching sessions. They were turning points to help me kind of focus on the things that were really important to me. You mentioned the word transformational, which comes up a lot, yeah. both in the reviews that we receive about the programme. But also I'm noticing it more and more in the web in general, in articles about coaching, and particularly this idea of transactional coaching versus transformational coaching. And I'm just wondering what your view on that is, the difference. 
Yeah. Well, I think it's um, important to know what the difference is when you're going into an assignment because quite a lot of organisations might only want you to be transactional, which is essentially what I would term performance coaching, which is, you know, kind of what are you doing at the moment? How does that need to improve? Let's work on a strategy to help that improve. So kind of quite kind of high level. And I think what the Barefoot Programme did for me and does for everybody is get that deeper level of reflection in place. So you're starting to think about things differently and be different, you know, through the models that we might use, the way that we focus psychologically on the human in front of us and kind of help them to be the best they can be. So that's more transformational for me that they are actually acting differently, feeling different. So it's a whole body experience rather than just a cognitive experience. Yeah. I absolutely love that. Am I right in thinking that you went on to tutor on the Barefoot Coach training programme? Yeah, I mean, that was a major honour, you know, at the time. You know, there was, obviously Kim was delivering it and then one or two of us kind of started to get involved in the early delivery. And so I became a a, a tutor on the programme. How was it different for you experiencing it second time round, this time from the position of a tutor rather than a delegate? Well, of course, I love the content. So that was great. And it's good refreshers. You know, when you educate, I think it really hones your own kind of capability and it, it makes you reflect on your own skills. And, and so you're doing, almost doing your own self-supervision when you're <laughs> when you're educating others. So that, that was a benefit, I think, for me. But I really liked the idea of spreading the word in a way that would honour the principles that Kim had created in the programme so that we could assure the quality of the coaching that was happening out in, you know, with everybody. So it was touching people in a really credible way. So I felt very privileged. And also there was, I suppose, a thing for me around passing the legacy of coaching on. This is a fantastic skill and to have as a person, whether you're a coach or not. And if we can touch people with that, that is a marvellous thing thing. Yeah. At Barefoot, we talk about distilling knowledge and how everybody can benefit from learning about coaching skills, whether that's, you know, how to have a better quality conversation with your partner or your child or a friend. Yeah. And I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say, there you go. Well, (laughs) in fact, one of my essays, I mean, I thought when I read back on it now, actually was all about coaching skills should be like a life skill taught in school. You know, I was properly evangelical about, about the idea. But actually, I think through doing the coaching tutoring, that was my offer of giving back to others to say, look, let's practice this. Let's build your skills. Let's build your confidence up as a coach so that you can go out and touch more people with this wonderful thing that ignites people, helps them see themselves for who they are, be listened to, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, I felt very privileged. What advice would you give to people listening who perhaps are considering becoming a coach they may well be in roles in organizations or they might be already working for themselves and thinking about adding coaching to their existing offering what advice would you give I think you need to be ready so you need to be ready to let go of some particularly if you're in a corporate environment it took me some time to to let go of corporate norms and be authentically true to myself in my coaching I think so you need to be ready to be prepared to shed some some old habits and be more authentic to yourself as you go into coaching so I think readiness is probably my key message around that and then openness you know openness to different ways of thinking about feeling about people 
I'm interested in something you said there, which was the sort of sense of having to unlearn mm. things about yourself. I'm just wondering if you could share a bit more about that or perhaps even an, an example oh, that yeah. you come across. Yes. So I suppose it goes back to that memorable coaching that I mentioned that I experienced on the coach program around the image that I had of myself. So bearing in mind, I'm a woman of a certain age. So therefore, you know, my power dressing of the 80s was in like, you know, <laughs> red suit, you know, power dressing, all that sort of shoulder, thing, shoulder pads, pads yeah. the whole lot. So that whole thing about dressing the part, being, you know, confident, showing confidence, all of those sorts of things and limited vulnerability, I would say, in that environment. Bearing in mind that I, the jobs I um, worked in when I was in senior jobs, it was mainly me as a female with a lot of guys, you know, unusually white guys. So so there was a certain thing about that, that you had to show strength, resilience, you know, all of that. So I learned very quickly on the coach programme and, and becoming a coach that actually, if I was more authentically myself in terms of showing vulnerability talking about the things when they didn't go so well, as well as the things that when they did go well and just showed up naturally, that was much more effective. So, yeah, that was, that's a really good example. Shedding the shoulder pads. Yes. <laughs> I'm sure they'll make a comeback at some point. These yeah, I think do, they are they? at the moment, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> totally not keeping up with the fashions. <laughs> Let's talk about how you're using your coaching in the work that you do now then. Yeah, so during the pandemic, actually, I was really involved in a project that was involved with primary care, working with primary care workers, helping them with their well-being and resilience. And it was known as the Looking After You Too programme. And it was a one-to-one programme that offered, free of charge, free at the point of access, some support to primary care workers. And that programme still going on actually I, I withdrew from the coaching and carried on supervising a team of the coaches that are on there now so I used my coaching capability hundreds and hundreds of hours of supporting and I felt that was the right thing to do at the time and I really thrived in that environment and worked in a wonderful team actually of coaches on that and then had the privilege of supervising that group of coaches as we've gone through the pandemic and now in the tail so that's one-to-one work. I obviously work with teams as well. And yeah, so working in that sort of more complex environment as a coach and usually with a buddy, actually, working with my coaching skills there. And then there's my education piece, which, you know, is that legacy point that I've mentioned before, that helping others to be the best that they can be going into coaching. So I'm using it sort of in different ways really as well as in the family of course which it doesn't go down so well now because they're all young adults <laughs> <laughs> do you find it rubs off though on a serious note do i think they... it i think it does a little bit in fact quite often my daughter will say things like oh you're asking those questions mum <laughs> my, all my friends really like coming around to talk to you mum because you ask questions <laughs> Um, yeah and uh, certainly for with my stepson and my son you know asking them questions helps them think about things so yeah I think it works in family setting it's important to help them form their adult relationships their adult thoughts as they're going into adult life Mm. and it's tricky for them you know the pandemic hasn't helped any of the young ones I think so just listening to them helping them to think about what they think about things Mm. where they want to go etc build their confidence yeah, hopefully I've done some small, reasonable job, but you'll have to ask them, I guess. <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. I think there's something about helping young people have a point of view yeah. about the world, as you say, that helps build their confidence. And also in a world that doesn't really switch off, where it's 
always full on. You know, even when at home we're in front of screens, conversations continue, triggers are coming at us. Having space to think actually is a real luxury. Yeah. Um, And their attention span generally, I I find, is is shorter. So if you can have a conversation over the dinner table that where you're listening to each other, that kind of stops all of that kind of phone checking and all that stuff. So, yeah, no, I agree. You've mentioned legacy a few times Mm. in our conversation so far today. And you also mentioned it in a beautiful piece that you wrote for me for issue one of the Barefoot Coaching magazine, where you wrote a brilliant piece on your experience of delivering the brand new EMCC accredited team coaching practitioner programme. What does legacy mean to you? Hmm. Well, I realised actually as a result of talking to my supervisor about, about my coaching practice a few years ago now, that legacy is important to me. And I wondered where it came from. And probably it originates, like most things, from how you receive your parents and what your parents have done in in their time. And in particular, for me, my father was very involved with the Scout movement and and in fact got an MBE many years ago for that work. I mean, sadly not with us anymore. But I always still feel very proud of the fact that he contributed all of that time, free of charge, so to speak, and gave back hundreds and thousands thousands of hours to the scout movement. So I grew up in that environment that, you know, you give back, that part of being successful in business is about giving back. And so always in my jobs, you know, in the, back in the corporate life, I always had elements of corporate social responsibility, that they were always elements of my roles as I went through that side of life. As I come into coaching, that whole idea of touching people with coaching, that's one part of the legacy. And I think the education piece for me is around offering a view of possibilities of helping coaches to take this further afield. And online is marvellous for this because, of course, our reach is global, which Mm -hmm. is marvellous, you know, whereas before it was maybe face-to-face in a room, which is wonderful. I mean, I love it. But actually on screen, you can kind of work with a wider group. So it's something about passing on and I think it comes that from my father, actually, that whole importance of it, giving back. I feel like I can't now ask you the question. <laughs> what do you want your legacy within the coaching space to be? I would like to think that I've, from a coach point of view, so training coaches and supervisors, actually, that with coaches that they feel confident, capable and able to, to do the work, then, then they've got supervisors that they can go to that will really hear their topics, their challenges, their opportunities in their practice and help them build their practice. So I hope that I've touched enough people for that to happen. I mean, I have featured in a few books, but I don't have a, an ambition to write a book. Um, I know you do, but I don't. <laughs> I don't, I don't. But, but what I found is writing some case studies in other books around topics that I'm interested in, I've enjoyed doing that, actually. That's been my little contribution to, if you like, the intellectual side of building the profession, the coaching profession and the supervision profession. You talked about giving back and, of course, that being part of your legacy in this industry. You also do work with the Prince's Trust. I do. And that's really important to me, actually. So when I set my own business up, I decided since I was dropping the corporate roles where social responsibility was inherently part of that. I thought, actually, when I've got my own business, I can choose kind of maybe where I spend some of my pro bono time and have sort of for the last 
18 years, done that. So I've worked with the Prince's Trust, usually with young entrepreneurs, actually, in their developing their business. So I work with them for two years. So I might help them think about their business plan to begin with. They then go through a panel, which sometimes I sit on panels for the Prince's Trust. And then you get allocated young businesses that you then work with. So I've worked with quite a few under 30-year-old entrepreneurial businesses to uh, support them. So it's called a mentor role, but of course I've just coached them. (laughs) So given that, and I do feel I've kind of contributed back with that and it feels good. Undoubtedly. How lucky they are to have Diane Hanher as their business mentor. Yeah, well, one of the things actually that came out of the work is that locally to the Midlands, there were some workshops wanting to be set up for the Prince's Trust around helping people to have that entrepreneurial mindset. And of course, I said, oh, I'll do a bit of that. <laughs> so so, so that's, a, that's like an add-on around thinking about how you can present yourself best you know, you are the face of your business. How do you confidently project that? So yeah, now that, I've really enjoyed that work and that continues. Brilliant. Hi, Kim. Hi, Adam. You know, I was thinking, there really is no single route to arriving at the Barefoot Coach Training Programme, is there? No, there isn't. People come from all walks of life, from the armed forces to aromatherapy, HR to hairdressing and teaching to taxi driving. But regardless of where they arrive from, they all share the same desire, and that is to make a change, to make a difference. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So whether people listening want to coach friends and family, coach at work, or in a new career as an accredited coach, when it comes to coach training, no two journeys are the same. You can find out where the Barefoot Line could take you by visiting barefootcoaching.co.uk. There's so much that we could talk about here. I mean, we've talked about your experience on the programme. We've talked about your experience delivering the programme. We've briefly mentioned supervision, and that's where I'd quite like to go next, because you describe yourself as an early adopter of supervision. And for anybody listening who hasn't come across coaching supervision, I wonder if you could share a bit more about what it is and why it's so important to our industry. Yeah, I think we were early adopters. So Kim and I had a conversation a lot of years ago about how important it was for coaches to access further development, if you will, to improve their practice. And on the back of that, we created the postgrad in coaching supervision, which we still run now a few times a year to build that coaching supervision capability. And I think for a coach, what's important is that rigour in their self-reflection. So no matter how you reflect, whether you reflect when you're walking, when you reflect with a fellow coach, etc., there is a major benefit to having a meta, what I call it a meta perspective on your practice. So supervision, you know, a little hyphen. So although <laughs> I don't really like, I, the, like I don't like the coaching supervision title, that going to someone that's outside of your system to look in on your practice, I think is not just helpful, it's essential. It can look at things like, you know, you might have contractual issues or if they call them managerial issues. But most notably to me, from my experience, it's around ethical dilemmas. So ethical dilemmas can come up for coaches. They may not even realise they're in it because it could be a value clash with themselves. It could be something happening with the client. It could be something in the organisation. And so having somewhere to go outside of that system, particularly if you're an internal coach, to just reflect on that, that's important. 
And then there's the idea that's around supervision, which is around growth, learning, refreshing ourselves, making sure that we're the best version of ourselves in terms of know-how, knowledge, experience, and and having somebody that you can have a, a collaborative conversation with about how do I develop myself further as a coach? And then the the one that I think is foundational is the restorative aspect. And that, again, was particularly pertinent in the pandemic period. You know, I have a supervision practice of coaches and definitely the sorts of things that were coming through in that period and forward is around restoring ourselves as a coach Mm -hmm. to be the best for our clients and to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves in the context of some pretty tricky scenarios that were happening in the pandemic, say, and are happening now as we go back into this hybrid working environment. So, yeah, I'm really passionate, as you probably gathered, (laughs) about supervision and how important it is. You know, I've just had a a supervision session myself this week with my supervisor. You know, I'm an experienced coach. I I work with a lot of people. I, I mean, I would say that I'm quite skilled and... I always go for a bit of rigor check with my supervisor and, you know, she challenges me and, and helps me think about things from a different perspective. So, yeah, it's pretty important to me. <laughs> How has your experience been then? Um, you came on the flagship programme, you then tutored on the flagship, mm-hmm. trained as a supervisor, you get supervision yourself. Now you lead yeah. Airfoot's postgraduate certificate in coaching yeah. supervision. And I'm, inter- I'm interested in how, if at all, that has changed your sort of outlook or the way you view supervision? Well, for sure, it's evolved, actually, over the time that when I originally had that conversation 15 years ago, say, about supervision compared to now, I think there's a lot more coaches accessing supervision because they recognise the value and merit of it. And that it's not about judging the coach. It's not about checking them out in terms of, you know, it it is very much a very involving, growing learning type space. And I think that's a shift in kind of what people think, you know, meta coaching or supervision is. And there's a lot more written about it now than there was 15 years ago as well. So yeah, the body of knowledge is building in this area. I mean, I think originally it came over from the kind of, if you like, the other helping therapies. And so that's probably why it took the title of supervision. Right. But for coaches, I mean, it is really important to review with rigour your practice. And I think that's what supervision does really well now. And there are lots of models you can use or not. You can be emergent and creative, but it's getting that meta perspective that's so important. And meta being a full perspective view of your coaching practice rather than perhaps your own reflections in this scenario. You you might be getting feedback from your clients, you'll be getting input from a trained coach supervisor. Absolutely. You reminded me of that brilliant series, I think it's on BBC Two, called Couples Therapy. Have you seen any of it? No, I remember that being recommended. I haven't seen it, actually. It's absolutely fascinating. She's a therapist, US-based, and she offers couples therapy. So the couples come in. It's not staged. It's all real life. They know they're being filmed. And, you know, she might show extracts maybe from three couples therapy sessions on each episode. But then the brilliant thing is you then cut to her, what she calls clinical supervision, with her clinical supervisor. And it's just fascinating because she's able to... You would have no idea, sort of observing the therapy session, all of the different things that were going through her mind. And in the safety of that clinical supervision session, she's sharing things that as a 
viewer, we would have had no idea what was going on. Yeah. Beliefs that was coming up for her. Yeah. You know, triggers. Yeah. Things that were making her yeah. think about her own life yeah. experiences. And yeah. Sort of to try and to rein that back and not bring that to the session. It's it's an absolutely fascinating watch. Well, that sounds a very good description of kind of what what a really good supervision session for for a coach would be about. You know, and and very much that point you were making about looking in and around the practice. So sometimes that's about clients. Sometimes that's about you. Often it's about you and kind of the triggers that they're pulling. Something they've said. They remind you of somebody or whatever. So, yeah, I, yeah, I think that's that sounds good. I might have to get catch up. I <laughs> player. Yeah, you've made me think about something which you've said a few times to me as we were building the team coaching practitioner program. Mm. Who you are is how you coach, mm. and I'm interested on your take on that. I think it links for me to authenticity. So, and I think it's a journey, you know, can you really be who you really are? And can you let all your guards down, just be absolutely natural? I would say that I'm on that journey. <laughs> you know, I'm a work in progress. You know, I'm doing it as well as I can do it, you know, or I'm ready to do it, if you like. And I think everybody, if you want to be most at ease, I mean, I absolutely love Nancy Klein's phrase around urgency destroys and ease creates. Mm. So for me, who you are is how you coach or who you are is how you supervise. It's kind of how can you get to that easeful state right from the get go so that you do your best work. So the more and more you can close that gap, the better. Mm. So, yeah, that's what I would say. Let's talk about team coaching then next, because I've mentioned you co-created that programme with me and Andy Chandler. You now lead it on behalf of Barefoot Coaching. Apart from the obvious for individual coaching versus team coaching, how does team coaching differ? Well, I suppose the obvious is that it's more than one person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, of course, you've got the, the complexity of a number of human beings in the room and the dynamics and the, the connections that those people have existing if they're an existing team. And so as a coach, I think it becomes a little bit more tricky. One-on-one, -on -one, you can really absorb focus, go deep with one person. With a team, your antennae in your focus and your soft gaze needs to be on point. So it's a more challenging environment potentially because you, your antennae are up. So therefore, skills in working with groups, facilitating groups, being with people in terms of group dynamics, that's helpful and that's different from one-to-one -one coaching, I think. And understanding some kind of psychological concepts about connections with people. I mean, we often draw in the programme, you know, from family therapy around things like the role that people play in the family might come into a team and all of that kind of idea. And I think that makes the whole thing, there's a lot more things to think about and a, a lot more to notice. So that to me is the difference and that you're looking not just to, you're not doing a team building event and you're not facilitating. You are trying to get the interpersonal connections more effective within that team and recognition of each other and appreciation of each other. It just adds that complexity layer. I think that's probably the significant thing. Can you tell me more about the idea of the family roles and how they are at home? Yeah. 
will then play out in the role they take in the team? Because that's fascinating to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's quite interesting to think about somebody who's always been the person that's sorted out the problems in the family setting. And then often they can be in a team and, and they're the one that's the collaborator or the one that tries to resolve any kind of issues within the team. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's a lens, you know, and, and one of the things about the team coaching practitioner program is that there's an eclectic set of lenses that you can use. And that's one of them to notice, you know, what's going on for that person in the team? How is that impacting on the team effectiveness as a result of, you know, that coalition, for example? So if you're carrying on with family therapeutic interventions, you know, oh, how entangled is this team in what's going on in the relationships rather than the core purpose of what they're supposed to be delivering? So you're drawing on concepts from a broad range to help you make a choiceful intervention, really, with that team. So, yeah, I think family therapy's got a lot to be said around because people bring their whole selves in, you know, that whole concept of you bring all of your experiences into the space when you're in a team. Mm. And when you're with a team of, I don't know, say 10 people, that's a lot to to take in, to observe, to untangle, to deal with. And I suppose this is why we recommend the use of a co-coach. For sure, yeah. I come from the days where you launched into team coaching. It was just you. I mean, I remember a particularly scary team coaching assignment when I was quite young within an organisation where, you know, I'd had no training. I was just using my own interpersonal sense of what was happening to try and get this team to think about each other a bit more than they were doing. It was a team of, we used to call them shapers in those days. So basically go-getters who just wanted to go and do their own thing. They all ran different (laughs) business units. I mean, when I think of it, it was quite funny (laughs) because they were all absolutely looking in opposite directions and we were trying to hone a direction that was all in the same way. But I had no training. I was in training. I was in leadership development then. I've been asked to run this session. So now this programme that we've got in place really brings in all of our experience and know-how to try and offer that, distill that for the future team coaches so that they are better prepared. And I think this programme provides that, provides the opportunity to really reflect on who you are and also join these concepts and ideas to do your best work as a team coach rather than just being landed into it, which is essentially what happened to me in my earlier career. You were bringing back some sort of PTSD from my <laughs> days in corporate where I was just kind of thrown into a room with yeah. a load of senior leadership team members to facilitate a session. And gosh, yeah, that sense of feeling, it just got yeah. me then. Yeah. Visceral. Yeah. yeah. So equally, when I asked you the question about what advice you would give to somebody thinking about being a coach, I'm interested now in what advice you would give to trained coaches thinking about coming into team coaching because I think it's fair to say that it's potentially a daunting move to go from one-to-one coaching to what we call one-to-many coaching. Yeah. What advice would you give to anybody who's perhaps interested in you know taking up team coaching? Well I said it in that article that we put into the newsletter around that team coaching is not for the faint-hearted in terms of tutoring on it but essentially that's a parallel process to team coaching is not for the faint-hearted out there with teams. So there is an element of resilience and knowing oneself that's important and I think it's probably an easier step if you've facilitated groups, Mm. you know you've led training events, you've done those probably in the sense of working with groups and group dynamics but I also think that fresh eyes are quite good so even though you feel like you're a really good one-to-one and you just fancy having a go at it working with small teams I mean it's very on topic at the moment to get teams more effective you know Mm. across all organizations so 
I think it's about being clear about the sorts of teams that you want to work with and being prepared to work with. Mm. The team effectiveness thing, you're absolutely right. And we're doing some work with a big corporate at the moment on that very topic. And Andy shared this really interesting model, which I think you teach on the Team Coaching Practitioner Programme, but this idea of members of a team and one plus one plus one plus one equals four, actually that isn't the case because the team members bring with them inefficiencies, you know, either a lack of healthy conflict or relationship yep. issues or whatever it might be. So actually one plus one plus one plus one actually equals two. And that the trick, of course, is focusing on the plus sign rather than the individual, the plus sign being the things that make this group of people really effective, their ability to be able to enter into constructive conflict, their sort of awareness of each other's strengths and you yeah. know, trigger points and all those wonderful things, ability to enter into you know difficult conversation when required. And I think that's the beautiful thing about team coaching is it brings to life this idea that, yeah, I'm a leader in my function and also I'm a member of this team and the two things are distinctly different. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what's, what's important when working with, with teams is the idea of, of everyone being beautifully flawed. So, I mean, I am a naturally optimistic, positive psychological stance person, but you know that everyone is beautifully flawed and some, there's something about acceptance around that first at the individual level, which is why one-to-one coaching is good to support team coaching, actually, because it helps kind of individuals within the team to kind of consider some of those things. Mm. And then within the team itself, the importance of safety and not to rush over that so that actually that kind of feeling safe in the environment could take a while, particularly if there's been a bit of history, which generally speaking there has. So Mm. those things mean that there's a bit of fleet of foot nature in team coaching, which it's not prescription, it's not prescribed, it's much more in the moment, more gestalt, if you like, Mm. in the moment. Brilliant. Across all the different coaching disciplines that you're part of, do you have a particular model or approach that you find yourself leaning on more frequently? So this has changed. Mm. (laughs) So this has changed, I think, over the time I've been a coach. I would always have described myself as a relationship coach. So in other words, if we can build our connection and our relational connection, then we can do the work. So I would spend time understanding client, client understanding me, all of that. And actually... I'm much more in the moment gestalt somatic these days. So basically accessing my whole response to somebody in my body, in my mind, in my felt sense, as well as working with what I'm noticing and thinking about language in particular and the way in which somebody's saying it. So whether that's choiceful or it's just a growth of me as a coach, I don't know, but that's where I am these days. It's much more using my own felt sense, my own somatic sense. To go where you need to. Mm. Is it Carl Jung's quote about know your theories and models, but be prepared to put them aside when you touch the miracle of the living soul, which sounds like exactly what you're doing? Well, that is my favourite quote. Is it? In fact, yes. Absolutely. So so that you hold those things lightly, all those models, concepts, ideas, and the miracle of another person just... I use a technical term of mushing, (laughs) mushing of all of that in service of the person in front of you. And that's why the accessing of all parts of me, I think, has improved over the time I've been a coach. Because I guess it takes practice, it takes having put the work in to really trust your own instincts. For sure. And trust in your craft. 
Yeah, yeah. And, I, you know, I've had to do work on that because when you're empathetic and highly empathetic, you're other person focused. So you can feel the other person's sense and kind of get into their shoes really easily. And what's also important in terms of providing an alternative perspective is to be able to get into your own body and your own sense Mm. and that's taken more work as an empath to kind of really get to that and be okay with it that's an important part of the work well let's talk about how you get into your own body and your own (laughs) senses then because you know I always like to find out which habits and strategies people pull on to take care of themselves mentally physically spiritually you're always busy yeah I am your diary is always full (laughs) yeah what do you do? What habits and strategies do you pull on to relax, to unwind, to de-stress? Yeah, walking. Walking is king. <laughs> Getting out in the fresh air is definitely a good thing to do. So I do that. I also do a little bit of yoga from a stretching and kind of mindfulness perspective. And actively, actually in the pandemic and out of the pandemic, I actively uh, worked with a mindfulness instructor to help me into meditation. Because what I was noticing, particularly then, when I was on the screen a lot, mm. was that I was coming off and I could hardly string a sentence together. <laughs> so, so I thought, right, we need to do something about that. Mm. So I sort of scheduled in mindful practice, but needed somebody to be with me to get that practice in place. Now I work independently on that and I do mindful movement and mindfulness. Not big hours of, but 10 minutes, it's really replenishing. So I find that really helpful, particularly if I've got a busy day on screen. Yeah. Little and often is what they say, isn't it? Only just a few minutes. Yeah. Sometimes I will just go and walk around the garden and literally just take a few minutes to look at the plants and touch the leaves and just sort of connect with something outside of my... Yeah. Well, I I did a course on neuroscience last year. And one of the things that really stuck with me was the idea of allowing your eyes to move around. So, you know, when you're on the screen, you're just looking at the person like I'm looking at you, Adam. Like tunnel vision. Yeah. And so actually going outside and and allowing your eyes to move around actually is replenishing in itself. So staring at a landscape or a view or the sunset is relaxing for the mind. So I really activated that into my walks. You know, I'd go in the morning, look at the sun, do all of those things things to help the mind quieten a little bit. Mm. And it worked. How do you think your well-being strategies, the things you pull on, have changed over the years? Because, of course, it's only really been the last few years that mindfulness, meditation have become mainstream. Mm. What did you sort of pull on before? Yeah. I mean, before, I mean, I was a super fit person, right? (laughs) I used to do do lots of working out, body pump, all those kinds of things, and HIIT training. And I was really, like, into all of that stuff. And I really did used to draw on that to help me with stress. You know, exercise was a big thing for me in my corporate life. Mm. And and then I had a, a moment in life, which when I was 49, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, which was a bit of a hit between the eyes job and thought what you mean all these things I've been doing like looking after myself hasn't really helped me here and I'm I'm here I've got to go through a whole lot of treatment to do with breast cancer but in a way I mean like every difficult thing it's like an opportunity really so a couple of things stand out for me around that time one was that my consultant said it was like an off-the-cuff comment he said we find that people who think positively tend to recover quicker 
oh, I liked the idea of that. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I took that one on board. And then I thought, right, well, if I'm going to take it positively, that's one thing. And the other thing was, there was lots of options to support you when you were going through your treatment. There was a little mini gym in the hospital that you could go to with fellow breast cancer sufferers and kind of do little workouts and stuff that were suitable for you where you were in your treatment. And uh, there was a mindfulness practice. So I took the view, right, I'm going to be positive about this. I'm going to accept all support and I'm going to access all support. So I essentially did that through my time of treatment, which was a good year or 18 months of treatment. So that introduced me to mindfulness. Now, before that, the idea of mindfulness, frankly, you would not have put next to me as a person. <laughs> You've been far too busy for that. Far too busy for that. But after that, and going through the train, I went through quite a substantial training for that, about eight weeks. And every week, we worked on our meditation tactics and strategies and approaches. Wow. And it was it was really helpful. Didn't like the whole body scan. I really couldn't do a 45-minute body scan, which links to the, my point about really working hard on the somatic stuff so I could really mm. sort of feel feel things, sensations in my body. But anyway, I worked at it and it's helped me access what was going on for me so that I wasn't going to be in a way caught out by a condition later on in life where I hadn't accessed noticing things in my body. You know, I just dismissed that because I'm always in service of other people. So it's a massive learning thing in, in there. But that's how I got into mindfulness. And then when the pandemic hit, I thought, right, this is a time when I need to come back into this world and work more rigorously around the mindful practice. Do you now sort of integrate that into your coaching practice? Yes. It, right. Yeah, much more. And in fact, particularly as people are running in from sessions, other sessions are coming into your practice or into your coaching session or whatever. I quite often do some mindfulness, breathing, getting people into the zone. The power of breathing is, is, is immense. And that definitely all comes from that experience. Where can people find out more about you if they'd like to? Oh, well, they can obviously get in contact with me through Barefoot. <laughs> and also I'm on LinkedIn. I mean, I'm absolutely rubbish at social media. I'm a follower, not a contributor. <laughs> so, so I follow lots of things that interest me. I follow people that I've worked with on LinkedIn, but I'm on there. So you can definitely contact me on there. Brilliant. Find you on LinkedIn. Diane Hannah, it's been an absolute joy. And let's not leave it another 12 months no. before we meet again. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, then be sure to subscribe to get alerts each time we release a new episode. Just search Barefoot Coaching Podcast wherever you get yours. Oh, and if you aren't already following us on social media, then do just search for Barefoot Coaching.